Welcome to the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. Welcome to another episode of Myth, Legend and Lore. Today, I have something rather special to share. In a previous episode, I was delighted to feature the track Something with Rocks and Water from the album The Celtic Rim by artist Ian Fantova. Ian has now released his latest album for us, and it's a beautifully crafted collection of songs, and I have the pleasure of inviting you to listen to them today. With each track, I will share some of Ian's thoughts and ideas behind writing the music and lyrics and I'll share a little mythology, legend, folklore along the way. As always, I will include links and information in the show description. If you haven't had a chance to visit Ian's social media, YouTube and Bandcamp pages yet, I think you might wish to after this episode. Boris, which in Irish Gaelic means ground, will propel you on a journey quite unlike any other. The vision that Ian had for this album is faultlessly communicated, with an array of instruments within each piece. The layering of melodies and sounds not only transport you to the past, but with a deftness of skill, introduces modern elements that feel as if they belong without question. Should you close your eyes and find your foot tapping to the beat, or feel your mind drifting from the sea across the land and scaling mountains, then I shall be in very good company indeed. As the valley slumbers, Ian writes, The song wants to invoke a valley that is sleeping and about to awaken. It might be that the valley itself is sleeping, or perhaps the spirit or creature that represents the valley. In the animation, you can see the magical landscapes with its monsters and creatures emerging from the mist. Through the slumbering mist, there is a sense of disquiet, like the calm before the storm. As you might now have guessed, there is a video to go with as the valley slumbers. I've watched it quite a few times now and really recommend viewing it. The animation and vision of the valley is stunning. I won't give too much away. But if you can imagine yourself travelling through a mythical valley, then this animation might well have captured it on screen. Through the mist, we begin our journey into the valley. There is evidence of humankind's existence once being there. Stone structures, a wooden ship resting on its side. A sword with its blade thrust into the ground. Rope bridges and dwellings. And what appears to be a Celtic symbol on a rock within a wood. There is the skeleton of a long-ago deceased dragon. Tree-like beings and deer significant symbols in many mythologies. Finally, we approach a dragon that appears to be sleeping. This is the warden, and as the music comes to a close, the shining eye, the dragon, opens.
Goblin's Den. Ian writes, It's a goblin song. The lyrics say, Deep into the goblin's den, you shall never see wise men. Deep into the goblin's den, play and dance and start again. So, it's about goblins. The idea they are these fun, crazy creatures, but also dark and dangerous, kind of evil. They're laughing and playing and dancing in a wild loop of pagan ritual, but they might quickly cut your throat if they see you stepping on their lair. Folklore tales involving goblins vary. While there are those that you might describe as whimsical, others have a darker tone, in which these magical or fairy-like creatures aren't always defeated. Some live on to torment those unlucky enough to come across them. Though it would be unfair to say that all goblins are evil, wicked or despicable. Hobgoblins, for example, in Scottish and English lore, while mischievous, pose very little threat to mankind. In European folklore, a goblin is often described as short, about the height of a man's knee, wizened with grey hair and beards, not really unlike a gnome or a sprite. Character traits often include greed, coveting gold or jewels, and usually items that we too would consider of great value. In Germany, you might call a goblin a kobold or a baumiesel. They are skilled in the art of metalwork deep within mines, or completing tasks of humans while they're sleeping. Beware though, if they're cared for, then all will be well. Mistreat them, and they can become quite malicious. Though it did make me laugh to find out that baumiesel means ass of the trees, and they are said to inhabit forests and woodland. The duendes in Spain and Portugal have been described as entities that can possess a home and cause great unrest but also small creatures that play music that can be heard inside a forest. And on occasion, young children are said to be lured towards the playful tune, becoming hopelessly lost within the trees. In Japan, the goblin falls into the class of spirits known as the bakamono. They are capable of shape-shifting, and possess the ability for both good and wicked work. And then, in Native American folklore, there are legends about little people, such as the Pukwaji of the Wampanoag tribe. These creatures are described as mischievous pranksters who like to trick people. Often they can be heard singing, either in a forest or in caves at the foothills of mountains. There is a tale from Scotland about two goblins, one called Ben Bainak and his wife Clashnick. Bainak was immortal, save for one spot on his chest which was marked by a mole. And Bainak also mistreated his wife terribly, so much so that her wails could be heard by the neighbouring farms. One man took pity upon Clashnick and freed him from Benak. The Highlander was called James Grey, and he shot an arrow straight into the chest of Ben Benak. Kleshnik was then freed from harm, and in thanks, she attached herself to the local families. However, goblin greed proved to be her undoing, as it really does know no bounds, since she was accused of thievery and cast out in the most horrible way. She disappeared within the forest and was never seen again. A tale that is somewhat gruesome and certainly more frightening is that of the Red Cap. It originates near the border between Scotland and England, and this particularly malevolent goblin is said to inhabit the ruins of castles. Red Cap is described as a very old, small man, grisly and wizened, with long white hair, sharp eyes of red, and thin fingers complete with talons. Should an unfortunate soul stumble upon his lair, either seeking shelter or having lost their way, they are attacked by Red Cap, who then soaks his cap in the victim's blood. However, if you travel northwards to Petshire, there is another redcap who dwells in Grantully Castle. This sprite or goblin is said to have a far kinder nature, bestowing good fortune to those who live there. The goblin in fairy lore of Wales is incredibly rich. 
There are tales of goblin song and dance, one being the forest of the year. It is said that in the middle of the forest there is a magical yew tree, and under that tree there is a fairy circle called the Dancing Place of the Goblin. The story goes that many years ago, two farm servants, named Twim and Iago, went one day to work in the forest of the year. Early in the afternoon the country became covered with mist so dense that the youth thought the sun was setting, and they prepared to go home. But when they came to the yew tree, they suddenly found that there was light all around them. Thinking that perhaps it was too early to return home after all, they chose to lie beneath the branches, or sleep to cold of them. Sometime later, Twim awoke. He found Iago had disappeared. Twim could only think that Iago had gone to the village on an errand, which they had talked about before they fell asleep. Twim went home, but come the next morning, Iago was still missing, and Twim was questioned harshly as to what had become of his fellow servant. He eventually confessed that they had fallen asleep under the yew, where the fairy circle was, and from that moment he had seen nothing more of Iago. They searched the whole forest over, and the whole country around, for many, many days, and finally Twim went to a conjurer, which was common practice in those days. The conjurer advised Twim, Go to the same place where you and the lad slept. Go there exactly a year after the boy was lost. Let it be on the same day of the year, and at the same time of the day. But take care that you do not step inside the fairy ring. Stand on the border of the green circle you saw there, and the boy will come out with many of the goblins to dance. When you see him near to you, so that you might take hold of him, snatch him out of the ring as quickly as you can. Twim did as he was told, and before his eyes Iago appeared, dancing in the ring with the goblin Twilith Teg. Twim pulled his friend free and was shocked by Iago's appearance, so painfully thin and pale. But Iago did not appear to realise this, and had no knowledge of a full year passing. Upon returning, Iago was fed and watered, but alas, it was too late, and he disintegrated before the villagers' eyes. I think it would be wise to say that great care must be taken, should you hear enchanting music or song, if a forest or woodland is nearby, for it just might be a goblin's den. Voyage of Maeldun by Alfred Tennyson I was the chief of the race. He had stricken my father dead. But I gathered my fellows together. I swore I would strike off his head. 
Each of them looked like a king, and was noble in birth and in worth, and each of them boasted he sprang from the oldest race upon the earth. Each was as brave in the fight as the bravest hero of song, and each of them liefer had died than have done one another wrong. He lived on an isle in the ocean, we sailed on a Friday morn. He that had slain my father the day before I was born. And we came to the isle in the ocean, and there on the shore was he. But a sudden blast blew us out and away through a boundless sea. And we came to the silent isle that we never had touched before, where a silent ocean always broke on a silent shore, and the bricks glittered on in the light without sound, and the long waterfalls poured in a thunderless plunge to the base of the mountain walls. And the poplar in Cyprus, unshaken by form, flourished up beyond sight, and the pine shot aloft from a crag to an unbelievable height. And high in the heaven above, it flickered a songless lark, and the cock couldn't crow, and the bull couldn't low, and the dog couldn't bark. And round it we went, and through it, and never a murmur a breath. It was all fair as life, it was all of it quiet as death. And we hated the beautiful isle, for whenever we strove to speak, our voices were thinner and fainter than any flittermouse shriek. And the men that were mighty of tongue, and could raise such a battle cry, that a hundred who'd heard it would rush on a thousand lances and die. Oh, they to be dumbed by the charm, so flustered with anger were they. They almost fell on each other, but after, we sailed away. Waving away. An extract from Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes, as the dainty, embellished shape of many species of sharks. Consider once more the universal cannibalism of the sea, all whose creatures prey upon each other, carrying on eternal war since the world began. Consider all this, and then turn to this green, gentle, and most docile earth. Consider them both, the sea and the land. And do you not find a strange analogy to something in yourself?
Eye of the Warden. Ian writes, This song resonates more inside me. The valley from track one slowly awakens as the song goes on, and with the valley a guardian that represents it, and nature in general. As his eyes slowly start to open, he becomes aware of itself after centuries of being asleep, aware of the surroundings and seeing all the harm that humans have done to nature and to themselves, all the wars, genocides, human rights violations, all the unimaginable amount of suffering throughout history, all for the sake of personal benefit. The warden feels injustice boiling in its blood and starts becoming angry and desperate. But then the song becomes more intense, until the end where the warden is fully awake, roaring and destroying everything in rage. It's not so much like divine punishment for the human race's bad behaviour, it's more like undirected sadness and anger, and exploding after seeing what we've done to the world. It's not, you little humans misbehaved, I'm going to destroy you. It's more, how could you do this? It hurts so much to see it. Can't stand this. From the Sumerian underworld of the primordial Kerr, the Babylonian dragon-like goddess Tiamat, and the serpentine creatures of the Mesopotamian and Egyptian myth, dragons have long played a vital role in the conflict of order and chaos. Throughout the mythology of cultures across the world, and in the heavens above us, dragons are described in a number of ways. Some walk on two legs, others four. Some are more serpentine in appearance and movement. Wings and burning breath. The dragons of Catalan region not only burn with fiery breath, but they're also poisonous. The odour of the drag rotting everything in its path. They have scales, forked tongues, more than one head on occasion, and each capable of its own terror. They have shining eyes, possess a desire for gold, jewels, harvest, cattle, and sacrifices. A demon and a monster, a creature to be feared. Symbolically connected to water and thunder, and according to some Chinese myths, dragons are capable of influencing the skies and the tides. In the Samo mythology of the Philippines, there is Sawa, the huge serpent-like monster who seeks to devour both the sun and the moon, but is thwarted by Apolaki, the sun god, and Mayari, the goddess of the moon. And there is the Samal Naga, who dwells within the celestial body of the Milky Way, waiting for its release so that it might punish the faithless. In Slovenia, there is the city of dragons, Ljubljana, and a connection to the Greek hero Jason and the Argonauts. Serbian and Bulgarian folklore offers us something else. Here dragons are described as defenders of the crops, who fight the demons called the Ale or the Allah. The demons are said to summon bad weather, hail and thunder. They have insatiable appetites, not just reserve for crops, but unlucky victims, and also the sun and the moon. In Arthurian legend, we encounter three dragons. They offer a prophecy, a namesake, and a portent of the future shrouded in symbolic imagery of a dream. In Scandinavian, Germanic, and Icelandic mythology and legend, we find the terrifying dragons Fafnir, Jormungandr, Nithog, and the Lager Fjotsomar. And many of us will also recognise the name Beowulf and his battle with the dragon who mortally wounds him. And yet, as destructive as these incredible fiends might be, they are also capable of love, avenging the deaths of their own kind, and a curious association with the feminine. There are tales of shape-shifting supernatural beings who present themselves as women, entering into a relationship and appearing as a faithful lover and mother. Such tales frequently have disastrous endings, loss and suffering, which is often caused by their human counterparts. As fearsome as these fantastic creatures are, capable of great demonstrations of wrath and force, 
There is something else quite mystical about them. Often you will find in myths and legends, there are elements of the dragon's physiology such as blood, bones and teeth that are essential ingredients for medicine and magic. It would appear dragons and humankind have long been at odds with one another, one foe perceived as an enemy, a harbinger of doom and destruction, the other as the hero, the vanquisher of the demon that threatens all. One connected with nature, and the other at its mercy. I have borne a helm of terror over all people since I lay on my brother's inheritance, and I blew poison in all directions around me, so that none dared to come near me, and I feared no weapon. I never found so many men before me, but I did not think myself much stronger, and everyone was afraid of me. I suggest you take your horse and ride away as fast as you can, because it often happens that he who receives a mortal wound avenges himself. Fafnir the Dragon, from the Saga of the Volsungs. Ian writes, The song came together in the middle of a wild camping trip with my sister. We were in a place in England called Malam Cove, inside the tent boiling quinoa with one of these camping stoves that takes ages. While we waited, we started playing to kill the time, and this song came up. A little over a mile and a half north of the village of Malam, in North Yorkshire, lies Malam Cove. Formed more than 12,000 years ago, at the end of the last ice age, by waterfalls carrying the meltwater of glaciers. Malam Cove is an impressive site. Some have even called it an amphitheatre of limestone. There is even a stone staircase on the west side of the cliff face, 
and stands about 260 feet high. It's situated within the Yorkshire Dales National Park and it certainly is a beautiful place and the scenes from above and below are quite stunning. Nearby is a small waterfall named Janet's Foss. It's believed it refers to a fairy queen who is said to inhabit a cave behind the falls. The word Foss has two translations. In Scandinavian it means waterfall, while in English it means force. It's surrounded by beautiful woodland. Whether the waters are calm or in spate, it's not hard to see why this place is considered magical. The idea of Ian and his sister sitting by the fireside, playing music and taking inspiration from their surroundings, is rather lovely. I sometimes think, what more is there to enjoy in life but the simple things? Sometimes they provide the most inspiration and the greatest joy. Nature is such a strong theme of this album. And in times such as these, it might be nice to take a break away, just enjoy the natural world around us. It really is an inspiring place. On the coin. Ian writes, This song conjures some kind of thrilling scene in a medieval market, perhaps a little burglar who steals a bag of coins and runs through the market, jumping and dodging the stands and escaping from its pursuers. The pursuers step on the coins and fall down, increasing the chaos of the whole situation. The little burglar then blends into the crowd and the pursuers cannot find him. There's a period of calm as the burglar calmly walks away through the market as if they were looking around like a regular customer might do. Then the pursuit starts again, with a final round of chaos and an undefined ending. There is no denying the impression of a chase scene, whether it's in a book, on screen, or here in music, as Ian demonstrates. The impact is instant. Fay markets are fairies attending a mortal market, are stories we find in the folklore of many cultures, from the jinns of Arabian and Islamic mythology, to the fairies of Welsh folklore. There are tales involving supernatural beings of many kinds. It would appear the lure of items desired and coveted by both groups can often prove to be too tempting. In 1862, poet Christina Rossetti published the wonderful poem Goblin's Market. It's really worth a read, if only to imagine the fairy tale world in which these two sisters of the fable, Laura and Lizzie, 
encounter goblin merchants who are rather cruel and violent. Laura is tempted by the goblins' enchanted fruit, and so she sacrifices a lock of her hair to the goblins. But death is soon upon her, and Lizzie, fearing for her sister's life, offers silver for an antidote. But the goblins would far rather have Lizzie than help her save Laura. Eventually, the love of one sister saves the other. Rossetti's poem was considered experimental in the Victorian era. The narrative takes centre stage, and the world she creates is quite beautiful. While the book in which it was printed, with a collection of Rossetti's other work, was aimed at children, to the mature reader, you can't help but identify themes of temptation, sacrifice and redemption. The imagery of Ian's medieval market scene really comes alive as soon as you hear the first few beats. It's not hard to visualise a thief, be they goblin or another fae creature, scurrying, dipping, weaving and racing through the crowds. The medieval period itself lasted from the 5th to the 15th century, with the fall of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the Renaissance. Life was undoubtedly hard in this age of the sword, instability and disease, and yet there were also periods of peace and creativity in the various arts. To this day, we can observe architecture, the written word, and objects that have survived the passage of time. For us, a medieval market town would have been quite something on the senses. The smells, sights and language, and even something as basic as food. The construction of many dwellings involved a wooden frame. Strips of wood, known as wattle, were woven into the framework. This was then covered or daubed with clay and animal dung, while thatch was commonly used for roofing. Hair straw would be strewn over the earth-beaten floors. A town would have consisted of narrow streets, brimming with people, and this came with its own set of problems. Inadequate sewage systems, wooden waste of every description, with a lack of fresh water, all contributed to an unhealthy, and one would imagine a foul-smelling environment. Lice, fleas and vermin were rife. However, towards the later half of the Middle Ages, there was a growing awareness of hygiene. Mudbreakers were hired to clean the streets. Butchers were no longer allowed to slaughter animals in the street, and were fined if they discarded the offal. In order to help keep the townspeople healthy, rules about the quality of food sold by traders were implemented. Bathhouses appeared offering hot, clean water, and the introduction of quarantine laws to combat plague, and poor souls affected by leprosy were confined to dedicated houses. But these laws were introduced to help the public, and it's still a very grim existence and terrifying death for those infected. With that rather fragrant and filthy picture in place, let's move on. With few people at this time having the ability to read, Traders and merchants would have their trade displayed outside their workshop, and those with premises often lived above the working area. And very much like today, you might find many skilled with the same craft on one street. On the market, you would find stalls, carts, or a simple cloth square set out with everything that you can imagine, from the essentials to the useful and everything in between. Livestock, vegetables, hardware, utensils, weaponry, cloth, medicines and spices. Countries were surprisingly rather connected in the medieval era. Many people would go on pilgrimage, sometimes crossing a distance of thousands of miles, and merchandise travelled along these routes as well. There is a wonderful book called The Company of Liars by Karen Maitland. It's set in the year 1348, and it follows a group of people who are travelling together by necessity rather than choice. They include a trader of holy relics, musicians, a healer, and a storyteller, among others. Plague has reached the shores of England. And as the group journeys from one market town to another, a shadow or a supernatural presence threatens both their lives and the lies that they've told. Karen Maitland describes the scenes and the markets with such skill you can almost feel yourself moving through the crowds. In a time when the land provided an incredible amount that people needed in order to survive, 
There was a place for every kind of merchant and customer in a medieval market, and almost every kind of trade was welcomed. Carpenters, weavers, millers, blacksmiths, cooks, farmers, doctors and butchers all had a place there, as would the inhabitants of the township. Peasants, nobility, soldiers, sailors, the nuns, priests and monks of the church, artists and musicians. Take me back to the woods. Ian writes, The song came up in the middle of a trip around the French Pyrenees. I was very much into the idea of going back to nature when you die, as your body decomposes and you turn into trees and other animals. The song refers to going back to nature in this sense. It's where we come from and where we all go. And in the middle, it's just this little short fantasy full of concrete and asphalt. You can have your life, your friends, your business. But there is this unavoidable call, one from nature that sooner or later takes us. From here I got this idea of a tree growing from my body after I die, and my kind of music remaining in the woods. The album cover is inspired by this idea. I must admit, I rather agree with Ian's idea. The landscape of our distant past was far more heavily forested than today. Forests, groves, Particular trees played a vital and sacred role in the beliefs and practices of many ancient cultures. It's thought the Celtic people believed that trees represented a link between their existence and the other world, the upper mortal world and the lower or other world, with their roots spreading deep underground and branches touching the sky. They were a symbol of bridges between the world beneath our feet and the celestial. Trees and individual species evoked life, longevity, and fertility. With deciduous trees, there was the symbolism of death in the winter, the falling of the leaves, and in spring, rebirth with the new leaf growth and the appearance of buds. This is thought to be connected with the Celtic philosophy of regeneration. Even the creatures of the forest were associated with trees in some way. For instance, the stag, with its spreading antlers, was perceived as having a close affinity with the wide-branched trees of the forest. The symbolism 
once more being confirmed by spring growth and the autumn shedding of the antlers, so closely resembling the seasonal leaf fall and regrowth in deciduous trees. The Tree of Life is another important symbol in the religion and myth of ancient peoples. It can be found not only in Norse, Celtic and Irish mythology, but that of ancient Mesopotamia and in Mayan, Buddhist and Native American belief. But that's barely scratching the surface. In Ireland, the sacred tree of life is closely connected with sacral kingship. When the tribe cleared the land for settlement, usually a great tree was left standing in the centre. This is where the chieftain would be inaugurated, for the tree, with its roots extending to the other world and its branches reaching the sky, connected to him with the power of both the heavens and the elements. Each tribe, or united tribes, may have gathered around the sacred tree with their chieftain or king, gazing upon the symbol of continuity, wisdom, and power. However, it's also thought that in warfare, opposing tribes would damage or destroy the symbol, stripping their foes of the source of their knowledge and life. The druids of the Celtic race had sacred connections with the oak tree. The word druid itself possibly derived from the proto-Celtic word dru, meaning oak, and has also been suggested the word wid, w-i-d, which means knowledge. The druids also used oak trees to form sacred groves and would use the branches in some of their rites as Pliny the Elder, who is a Roman author, naturalist and philosopher, mentioned in his natural history, when on the festival of the sixth day of the moon, Druids climbed a sacred oak, cut down a branch of mistletoe and sacrificed two white bulls in a fertility rite. The oak is sometimes thought of as being representative of the tree of life, linking the visible world with the other world, and was revered for its strength and longevity. It could also be considered as a gateway or door to sacred knowledge. Oak trees were associated with the sky and solar gods, and many of the Celtic images and carvings that have been discovered in archaeological digs are found to be made from oak, showing the regard in which these items were held. But what of the other trees that we might find in forests and groves? Apparently to induce prophetic visions, druids would sleep on wattles of knowledge, which were essentially platforms made of woods such as Rhone, which are sacred to the triple goddess Bridget and used as a protection against enchantment, or hazel, the tree whose nuts fed the salmon of knowledge, which we've heard about in the legends of Finn McCool. In Old and Middle Irish, the word for a sacred tree is bile, and the goddess Maeve had her own sacred tree called the Bile Maeve, and it's also reflected in the Gaulish place name Biliomagus, which means the plain of the sacred tree. There are some excellent online digital maps of the Roman Empire. You will find Biliomagus, situated in now what is the Rhone Alp region in France. Some Gaulish tribal names also reflect the veneration for trees, the Euburone, or the U tribe, and the Lemovis, the people of the elm. Individual trees, along with their symbolic value, also had a medicinal or practical use. For instance, the birch, whose silvery bark could be made into shoes, woven in baskets and used for boats, and was used also to treat rheumatism, or the yew, which was linked to death and rebirth and was used to make longbows. The willow trees, leaves and bark soothe aches and fevers, the nuts of the hazel providing wisdom and inspiration, or the alder used to treat inflammation, not to mention the properties valued for casting spells or divination. And finally we have ogham, sometimes referred to as the tree alphabet or language of the trees. Ogham, the earliest form of Irish writing, and as legend tells us was the invention of Ogma, the god of excellence in literature. It's a system of strokes across a horizontal line in which each letter was associated with a tree. The first three letters were beef, birch, 
Us, Rowan, Nuin, Ash. Nowadays, existing examples of oakum can be found carved into stone in Ireland, Scotland and Wales. There are a variety of theories regarding the origin and motivation of the Ogham language. There is a wonderful document preserved by the Royal Irish Academy known as the Ogham Tract or the Book of Ogham's. It possesses a variety of over 100 scales or secret methods of writing Ogham. Curiously, it regards the runic younger Futhark as Viking Ogham, and runes do actually bear a striking similarity to Ogham symbols. The Fiel or the Gaelic poet would have to learn all the variants of Ogham, and that's an incredible task when you think about it. I would like to thank Ian for sharing his album for us with us today. All links will be included in the show description, but you can find Ian on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Bandcamp and Instagram. Please take a look at his new album and past projects. But without further ado, I give you Take Me Back to the Woods.
Thank you so much for listening today. As always, you can find me on Twitter at loremyth or email mlegendlore at gmail.com. I'm Siobhan Clark, and this is the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. <laughs>